All right, amen. Well, we're there in Ezra chapter number 9, and on Sunday mornings we've been studying this idea of revival. We've been going through the passages in Scripture that either teach us about revival, or we've been looking at the great revivals in uh, the Bible. And if you remember, we've learned about uh, different things that are going to be needed for revival, things that we need to incorporate into our lives. We've talked about dying to self. We've talked about revival through the house of God and through the word of God and through prayer. And this morning, I want to speak to you on the subject of revival through separation. Revival through separation. Now, the subject of separation and the doctrine of separation is something that you're not going to hear a lot about today in uh, most churches you go to. But as we'll see this morning, it's something that the Bible talks a lot about. And I want to begin this morning, and if you're taking notes, I'd encourage you to maybe write a few of these things down and jot down these references on the back of your course of the week. There's a place for you to write things down. I want to begin by talking about what is separation, what uh, separation is. Now, you're there in Ezra chapter 9. I'd like you to look down at verse number 1. Ezra chapter number 9 and verse 1, the Bible says this. Now, when these things were done, the princes came to me saying, the people of Israel and the priests and the Levites, notice these words, have not separated themselves from the people of the lands. Here we have Ezra, the leader, who is uh, bringing the restoration. He's leading, and he's one of the leaders of the restoration of the nation of Israel. Of course, you have Ezra and Nehemiah. These two books are uh, contemporary books. These are leaders that came back from the captivity, and they are bringing uh, biblical uh, religion back to the land of Israel. Ezra is the spiritual leader rebuilding the temple, and Nehemiah is the political leader rebuilding the wall. And Ezra gets this this these new this news from these uh, these people that he is leading. And I want you to notice again there in the midst of verse one, they tell him that the people have not separated themselves from. The people of the land. So he's being told that the people of God, the people that he's leading, that are coming back to God, have not separated themselves from the land. And if you're writing uh, things down, especially if this idea of separation is new to you, I want you to understand what the Bible teaches about separation. And the first thing that I would encourage you to kind of memorize or, or write down is this. When we talk about separation, it is separation from the world. Separation from the world. He says they have not separated themselves from the people of the lands. He's talking about the people of this world, the, the, uh, the, the people that are around them. He says, doing according to their abominations. He says the nations around us are uh, heathen. They are abominable people. And the people of God have not separated themselves from the people of the land, doing according to their abominations, even of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites. Look at verse 2. For they have taken their daughters for themselves and for their sons. Now here he's specifically talking about the fact that they're actually marrying heathen people. You know, the Bible teaches this concept that we as believers should not marry unbelievers. The Bible says to, be not un, to, to not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. And he's talking about the fact that they've married, they've intermingled in marriage with unbelievers, but the, the, that's specifically what's being done here, what he's talking about. But we can apply this to the fact that they're just mixing themselves with the world. Notice verse 2 again, For they have taken of their daughters for themselves and for their sons, so that the, notice, holy seed. You see that word holy there? The word holy means separated, set apart, 
sanctified, he says, so that the holy seed have mingled themselves with the people of those lands. Yea, the hand of the princes and the rulers has been chief in this trespass. And it's interesting to me that as the people have failed to separate themselves from the world, here Nehemiah, excuse me, Ezra is telling us that the hands of the princes and rulers has been chief in this trespass. You know, the Bible teaches this concept. The Bible doesn't say these words, but it teaches this concept that everything rises and falls on leadership. Everything rises and falls on leadership. And here he's saying it is the princes and the rulers who are to blame for the fact that the people have mingled themselves together. And look, when it comes to separation, it is those of us that are in leadership that are responsible for teaching those of us that follow us the concept and the idea of separation. Now, keep your place there in Ezra 9. That's our text for this morning. But go with me, if you would, to the book of 2 Corinthians in the New Testament, chapter number 6. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, chapter number 6. And when you get to the book of 2 Corinthians, do me a favor and put a ribbon or a bookmark or, or something there, uh, because we're going to leave it and we're going to come back to it. And I want you to be able to get to it quickly. We're going to be coming back and forth uh, between Ezra and 2 Corinthians throughout the sermon. So I'd like you to be able to get to it quickly. 2 Corinthians chapter number 6 and verse 14. When we're talking about separation, separation, we're talking about separation from the world, separation from the nations among us. Look, and the truth is this, for us as New Testament believers, it is no different than Ezra as Old Testament uh, uh, saints. The people around us are heathen. I don't know if you know that. The people around us are committing abominations. The lands around us, you live around people whose lives are not pleasing to the Lord, whose lives are not honoring to God, whose lives in many ways are an abomination unto the Lord. And God tells us that we should be separated, we should live separated from the world. 2 Corinthians 6, look at verse 14. 2 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 14, the Bible says this, Be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. He's saying, look, you ought not be yoking yourself up. You ought not be uh, 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 partnering up with an unbeliever. You say, why is that? Because of the fact that that is an unequal yoke. Notice, he says, for what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness? The word fellowship means to uh, have friendship or to exercise friendship or to exercise a a relationship with another individual. And he says, look, what fellowship, what friendship can righteousness and unrighteousness have together? And this is a rhetorical question, but the answer is obvious. He says none. Righteousness and unrighteousness cannot fellowship together. Then he says this, and what communion? What is communion? Communion is, again, fellowshipping is communicating and having communication. He says, what communion hath light with darkness? And here's the question he's, he's asking. He's saying, how much can you mix light with darkness? And the answer is obvious. You cannot. You cannot mix light and darkness. You either have light or you have darkness. But as soon as you turn on a light, the darkness goes away. As soon as you put out the light, the darkness appears. He says, look, what communion hath light with darkness? Then he says this in verse 15. He says, and what concord? That word means agreement or harmony, hath Christ with Belial. Now, Belial is a New Testament word that basically means the devil. He says, what agreement or harmony does Christ, does Jesus have with the devil? Or what part? And and, and he's saying there, 
how much of these two things can take part together? Hath he that believeth with an infidel. And what he's saying is this. He's saying, look, if you're going to be a Christian that is going to live for the Lord, you're going to have to learn to live separated from the world. Notice verse 16. And what agreement. Again, the word agreement means to be in harmony or in accordance with. And what agreement hath the temple of God with idols? For ye are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them and walk in them, and, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. We're going to come back to that in a minute. Notice verse 17. He says, wherefore. And I want you to notice this word wherefore. The word wherefore means for this reason. And you might ask, well, for what reason? Well, for the reasons that he just gave. Because he, says, he says, what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness? What communion hath light with darkness? What concord hath Christ with Belial? What part had he with, uh, that believeth with an infidel? What agreement hath the temple of God with idols? And, and, and the answer would be a resounding uh, no, uh, none to all of those questions. These things cannot mix. Christ and the devil cannot mix. Light and darkness cannot mix. The temple of God and the temple of idols cannot mix. And here's what Paul would say in verse 17. He says, wherefore, he says, for this reason, come out from among them and be ye separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you. See, when the Bible teaches the concept, when we, when we talk about the concept of separation, if you come to Very Baptist Church for any length of time, you'll hear me talk about separation from time to time. And when we're talking about separation, I want you to understand that it is separation from the world. We are to come out from among them and be ye separate. Now, keep your place there in 2 Corinthians. We're going to come back to it. But go with me, if you would, to the book of Titus. Titus chapter number 2. If you're there in 2 Corinthians, you're just going to go past the book of Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and then you'll find all those T books. They're all clustered together. 1st, 2nd Thessalonians, 1st, 2nd Timothy, Titus. 2 Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. Find the T-books, 1st, 2nd Thessalonians, 1st, 2nd Timothy, Titus. Now, I realize that you have your place in Ezra, and I realize that I asked you to keep your place in 2nd Corinthians, but I'd also like you to keep your place in Titus, okay? We're going to come back to those three uh, a little bit. So please help me out and keep your place there so we can come back quickly, if you can manage that. Titus, chapter number 2, and I want you to notice verse number 14, because I want you to understand this, and I think this is where a big failure that happens when we teach and preach about separation, especially as fundamental Baptists, is that we fail to completely help people understand the concept of separation. Because here's the truth. When we talk about separation from the world, that's a pretty easy concept to understand. People get it. We're not supposed to be like the world. We're supposed to come out from among them and be separate, saith the Lord. But I want you to understand that that is really only one aspect of separation. To really understand separation, you need to understand that, yes, it is separation from the world, but it is for the purpose of separation unto God. Titus 2, look at verse 14. Titus chapter 2 and verse 14. Notice what the Bible says. Who gave himself for us, talking about Jesus, that he might redeem us from all iniquity. See, when God saved you, he saved you from all your sins, right? From all iniquity. But that's not the only reason he saved you. He saved you that you might not go to hell, but it says that he might redeem us from all iniquity and, notice, purify. What does the word purify mean? It means to make pure. It means to cleanse. It means to clean up. It means to sanctify. Notice, and to purify unto himself a peculiar people. What does the word peculiar mean? It means unusual, special, different, 
set apart. See, when God saved you, he saved you from your sins, but he also saved you with the purpose that you might be separated, yes, from the world unto him. The Bible says, and purify, notice these words, unto himself, a peculiar people. When we talk about separation, what do we mean? It's separated from the world and unto God. And I want you to notice what are our motivations for separation. Keep your place in 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 6. We're going to come back to it. Keep your place in Titus. Go with me to the book of Ezra, if you would, Ezra chapter number 9. There really are two, two motives for separation. One is negative and one is positive. We'll start with the negative one because that's the one we usually think about when we think about separation. What are our motives for separation? Separation is motivated by and should be motivated by God's judgment. Notice verse number three. And when I heard this thing, so Ezra, Ezra is just leading and all of a sudden he gets the news that a bunch of people from the nation of Israel, people that he brought with him to help restore the temple, people that he brought with him, people that agreed and said, yes, Ezra, we want to help you bring biblical uh, uh, religion back to the nation of Israel. We're going to work with you to create a land and to create a people that is called out unto the Lord. And now he gets the news that these same people who said, yes, we'll sign up. Yes, we'll help you. Yes, we'll, we'll separate ourselves unto God. These people have been intermingling and actually marrying and forming relationships with the abominable world. And I want you to notice Ezra's response, verse 3. And when I heard this thing, I rent my garment and my mantle. He ripped his clothes off. And if you read the Old Testament, you know this is something that's often done during times of humility and, and grief, where they'll, they'll rent their clothes. He said, I rent my garment and my mantle and plucked off the hair of my head and of my beard, and sat down astonished. And that's an old word for the word astonished. Notice verse 4. Then were assembled unto me. Notice these words. Everyone that trembled at the words of the God of Israel. See, the truth is this. When you actually believe the Bible, you will practice separation. Because when you actually believe the Bible then you actually believe that there is a God that judges. You actually believe that you will reap what you've sown. You, so here, Ezra, he's reading the Bible. He understands the Bible. The Bible tells us that Ezra was already scribe. And when he heard about this, he, he knew the consequences. So he rent his garments and his mantle. He plucked off the hair of his head and his beard. He sat down astonished or astonished. And then everyone that trembled at the words of the God of Israel uh, because of the transgression, notice, because of the transgression of those that had been carried away and I sat astonished until the evening sacrifice. Verse 5. And at the evening sacrifice, I arose up. Notice these words. From my heaviness. And having rent my garment and my mantle, I fell upon my knees and spread out my hands unto the Lord my God and said, oh my God. And by the way, you know in the Bible, the only times you see people spreading up their hands to God is during private prayer. This whole worship time of getting your hands up, you don't see that in the Bible. Only time you see the people raising their hands up is in a time of grief like this, when they're uh, calling out to God as their father. He says, I fell upon my knees, notice verse 5, and spread out my hands unto the Lord my God, and said, oh my God, notice these words, he says, I am ashamed. 
and blush and lift up my face to thee. And here we see the heart of Ezra as a leader. Everything rises and falls on leadership. And Ezra here is broken. And I'll tell you, you know, I've never led a nation, but I've led a church. And I will tell you, sometimes you watch people. Sometimes you watch people make decisions and make mistakes and begin to go down a road where you know those of us who tremble at the words of the God of Israel know where that will lead and it weighs on you. It's heavy. He said, I arose from my heaviness. He said, I am ashamed and blushed to lift up my face to thee, my God, for our iniquities are increased over our head and our trespass is grown up unto the heavens. Since the days of our fathers have we been in great trespass unto this day. And for our iniquities have we, our kings and our priests, been delivered into the hands of the kings of the land to the sword, to the captivity and to the spoil, into the confusion of faith as it is this day. Notice, look, uh, look down at verse number 14, same chapter. Notice what he says. He says, should we again break thy commandments and join in affinity with the people of these abominations? The word affinity means to join in partnership, to, to, to create an alliance. He said, should we again break thy commandments? And join an affinity with the people of these abominations. He says, Wouldest not thou be angry with us? For thou hast consumed us, so that there should be no remnant, nor escaping. I want you to notice, please, and please understand this. He said, what should motivate me to live a separated life from the world unto God? You know, the first thing that ought to motivate you is the fact that God is a God of judgment. I mean, if we, if we were to draw close to God, if you were to get along with God and lift up your eyes to God and lift up your hands to God and actually say, God, is my life pleasing to you? You might find yourself ashamed and blush to even lift up your face to God. See, the motivation for separation ought to be judgment, ought to be the judgment of God, ought to be the fact that way a heaviness on us. Listen, Dad, there ought to weigh a heaviness on you when you watch your children making wrong decisions and going down the wrong road. Hey, there ought to be a heaviness on you that drives you to your knees in prayer and saying, God, I'm ashamed. Lift up my eyes to you. Like Job would sacrifice for his children. Hey, as a pastor, sometimes the sins of the church it weighs on me. Most of the problems we have in a church like this are due to carnal Christianity. And it can be heavy. The Bible says, obey them that have the rule over you. And submit yourselves. For they watch for your souls as they that must give account. That they may do it with joy and not with grief. And here we see Ezra having to give an account for those that are following him. And he's not doing it with joy. He's doing it with grief because he realizes that these decisions, please listen to me, choices have consequences. You don't get to just live for yourself and do what you want, and I'm going to do this, and I'm going to do that, and I'm going to go there, and I'm going to just get involved in this sin and that sin. Look, your decisions will have consequences. You say, what should motivate us to live godly and Christian and separated life? Well, what ought to motivate you, what ought to scare you, is the judgment of God. The fear of the Lord, the Bible says, is the beginning of knowledge. Separation should be motivated by the judgment of God. That's the negative. But let me give you a positive thought. Not only should separation be motivated by God's judgment, 
Separation should be motivated by God's love. Notice verse 8. And now, I love these words. When it comes to revival and a passage on revival, Ezra chapter 9 is probably one of my favorite passages when it comes to the idea of revival. In fact, if you don't mind writing in your Bible, I'd like you to underline a few things. He says, and now. He says, for, I want you to notice these four words. And if you don't mind writing, I'd underline these in your Bible. A little space grace. A little space grace has been showed from the Lord our God. I don't know about you, but aren't you thankful that God, for a little space, has showed grace to you? Shown grace to me? And now for a little space, grace has been showed from the Lord our God to leave us a remnant to escape and to give us a nail in his holy place. Notice that our God may lighten our eyes. The idea there is give hope to our eyes, is is give a chance to our eyes. Notice these words, last part of verse 8. And give us, notice these words, a little reviving. He doesn't give us a little reviving in our body. You say, oh, you know, uh, you you guys are so negative. You know, you want me to serve God because God's going to punish me and God's going to judge me and there's going to be consequences and God's going to come down hard on me. And look, you ought to serve God for all those reasons. But if you don't like the negative, how about this? Why don't you serve God because you love God? Why don't you serve God? Because for a little space, grace has been shown to you. Because God has allowed an opportunity for a little reviving. In our bondage. Notice verse 9. For we were bondmen. Yet our God hath not forsaken us. Aren't you thankful that God doesn't forsake? For God hath not forsaken us in our bondage. But notice these words. Hath extended mercy. Look, all of this can be applied to you and me. God has given a little space of grace. God has given a little reviving. God has extended mercy unto us in the sight of the king of Persia to give us a reviving, to set up the house of our God and to repair the desolation thereof and to give us a wall in Judah and in Jerusalem. And now, our God, what shall we say after this? We have forsaken thy commandments. He's saying, how? He's saying, God, when you have been so good to me, when you have been so good to us, How could we but separate ourselves? Yes, from the world, but you know, even more than that, unto God. Look at verse 11. Which thou hast commanded by thy servant the prophet, saying, The land unto which ye go to possess, it is an unclean land. With the filthiness of the people of the land, with their abominations, which have filled it from one end to another with uncleanness. Look at verse 13. After all that is come upon us for our evil deeds and for our trespass, seeing that thou, our God, has punished us. Don't, don't miss these words. Have punished us less than our iniquities deserve. You know, every single one of us can say God has punished us less than our iniquities deserve. God has shown a little grace, a little space of grace unto us which were in bondage. God has given the opportunity for a little reviving, and God has punished us less than our iniquities deserve. And you say, why, why, why does that matter? Look, when you realize that God has punished you less than you deserve, maybe that would motivate you to live for him. And has given us such deliverance as this. Did you keep your place in Titus? Go, go back to the book of Titus, if you would, chapter number two. 
See, there is a motivation for separation that is this. Look, God's going to come down on you. God's going to correct you. God's going to chastise you. You will reap what you sow. There are consequences for the choices we make. But, and that's real, and that's true, and we don't want to minimize that. But even more than that, do you think God loves you? Right, God sent his son to die on the cross for you, that you deserve to die and go to hell. And look, if you would have, if God would have allowed all of us to die and go to hell, he would have been just and justified. And yet he has showed a little grace, a little space of grace. He has not forsaken us. He has given us a little reviving. You know, we ought to live for God. We ought to live separated lives just as a result of the love of God. Titus chapter 2, look at verse 11. Titus chapter 2, verse 11. Notice what the Bible says. For the grace of God. For the grace of God. Usually when we talk about the grace of God, we talk about salvation, right? And that's what he says. For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men. What's the grace of God? The theological term for the word grace is unmerited favor. Favor that you did not merit, that you did not deserve, that you did not earn. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Not of works, not earned, not something you merited. He says, for the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men. Notice verse 12, teaching us. What is teaching us? The grace of God. The grace that brought down salvation. The grace that brought down forgiveness. The grace that brought down mercy to us. That same grace that saved you ought to teach us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. You say, why should I live soberly? Why should I live righteously? Why should I live godly? Because of the grace of God. I don't like all these rules. That's what teenagers say. I don't like all these rules. Hey, how about you forget the rules and just realize that God has allowed you to be raised in a home where you have a mom and dad that loves you. God is allowing you to be raised in a, in a home where, you know, you say, well, my home has problems. Your home may have problems, but here's what I know. You're here. And there's a whole lot of kids in this world that wish they were in a home that would bring them to a place like this. And God has given you a little grace, and God has given you a little space, and God has given you a little time of reviving. And you say, well, I don't like all the rules. Okay, well, how about you keep the rules just because you love God? For the grace of God bringeth salvation. And the grace of God is what teaches us that we have to deny ungodliness and worldly lust and live soberly. Go to 1 John, if you would, chapter 4. Towards the end of the New Testament, you start at the book of Revelation and you head back. You have the book of Jude, one chapter, third and second John. They're each one chapter. Then you have the book of first John, just right towards the end. Revelation, Jude, third John, second John, first John. You can, you can lose your place there in Titus and just keep your place there in first John because we're going to leave it and we're going to come back to it. First John chapter four. I want you to notice these words. See, sometimes we struggle. I mean, Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments, right? I mean, the, the, the Bible says that the first command, the greatest commandment is to love the Lord thy God with all thine heart, with all thy soul, with all thy might. And the second is like unto it, to love thy neighbor as thyself. And you say, well, I struggle with this idea of loving. Loving God. I mean, do I really love God? I'm not motivated to love God. And this is because we begin sometimes with the concept of love in the wrong place. See, when you begin with the concept of your love for God, you've already lost because that's not how it works. The truth is this. 1 John 4.19, the Bible says, we love Him because He first loved us. While we were yet sinners, 
Christ died for us. You say, I don't have a motivation to love the Lord. Well, maybe you ought to focus on the fact that God loved me. We ought to dwell on the idea that God sent down his son for me, that God has shown a little reviving to me, that God has not punished me as badly as he should have or could have, that he has punished us less than our iniquities deserve. When we begin with the thought of God's love toward us, then, hey, we love him because he first loved us. Paul said this, the love of Christ constraineth us. See, separation, the concept of separation is from the world unto God. Motivated, yeah, maybe initially or temporarily by the judgment of God, but in the long run, it ought to be motivated by the love of God. It's like marriage. A young man gets married. A young lady gets married. They walk down an altar. They make vows. You know, in that process, they are committing themselves to each other, right? For better or worse, and richer or poorer, so death do us part. But what they're also doing is separating themselves from everyone else, right? There is a separation for a young man. I'm separating myself from every other young lady out there, and I'm separating myself unto this young lady that I am committing my life to. A young lady would say, I'm separating myself from every other young man out there, and I am committing myself unto this man. And look, you have not lived your marriage the entire time just, oh, this is just so many rules, so much bondage, you know. I just, look, you ought to be motivated by love. You, a husband ought to be motivated by the love of his wife, by the fact that he loves his wife, the fact that his wife uh, she ought to be motivated by the fact that she loves him to maintain separation from others. We would use the analogy of a parent. I mean, this is the analogy that God uses. He calls himself the father. Look, please understand this. When we are raising our children and they are young, there is initially, there is initially a motivation of judgment, Right? called spankings. If you're not doing it, you need to start. <laughs> you know, and, and because look, this is how God motivates us. You know, he motivates us through punishment. But you know that eventually there should come a point. There, there should come a point, and this doesn't always happen, but there should come a point in child rearing where there is a transfer that's done, where kids go from I'm not just listening to mom and dad because of the judgment, because they're going to spank them. I'm listening to them just because I actually love them and respect them, because I don't want to hurt them. There should come a point in the relationship of a child where you transition into, I actually just love my parents. I don't want to hurt my parents. I realize if I do this, if I partake in this, it's going to hurt them. They're going to be like Ezra. Uh, lifting up their uh, hands to God in shame. I wish not to do that. I'm not preaching about this this morning, but let me just go ahead and say this to you kids out there. Let that motivate you to do right. The fact that your sin will hurt your parents. The fact that your sin will break their hearts. That would be a motivation. We love him. And by the way, you say, I love my parents. You know why? Because they first loved you. We love him because they first loved us. Go back to the book of Ezra. Keep your place right there in 1 John, if you would. Keep your place in Titus and go back to Ezra. We talked about what separation is. What is separation? Separation is from the world unto God. It is motivated by judgment initially, but it ought to. Look, in the maturing Christian's life, it ought to 
go from the judgment of God to being motivated by the love of God. The love of Christ constraineth us. Look, please, please understand that I'm not trying to, I'm not trying to demotivate you. I realize sometimes when I talk this frankly with people, it's, it's demotivating and, and I don't really understand why and I'm praying the Holy Spirit helps me. But if getting up and going sowing on Saturday morning is just a huge, just, you know, I just hate it so much. Yeah, I just do it because if I don't, pastor's going to make me feel bad. Please do me a favor, just stay home. Like you, you say, what, what, Pastor, why do you go sowing? You had to go sowing because you love the Lord. You had to get up on a Saturday morning and say, you know what? Someone took the time to give me the gospel. Someone took the time to share with me the plan of salvation. Someone, I was on my way to hell, and someone took the time to invest in me and the love of Christ. God has denied, God has punished me less than my iniquities deserve. God has given me a little space of grace. God has given me a little reviving. And that love ought to motivate. You say, oh, I got to show up to Sunday night church or pastor won't let me, you know, be an usher or pastor won't let me play in the orchestra. You know, you got to show up to Sunday night church because you love God. You got to get up and read your Bible because you love the Lord. And if you're doing it out of just keeping rules and taking rules and I got all these rules, hey, you're never going to make it in the Christian life. Because the judgment and the punishment can only motivate you for a while. Look, that only ought to motivate a five, a six, a seven, an eight, a ten-year-old. By the time you're 19, 20, you ought to just be listening to your parents because you love them. You respect them. And look, in the Christian life, I better do it because Pastor said, all you're showing us is your immaturity as a Christian. Because eventually the love of Christ ought to constrain us. The grace of God that bringeth salvation ought to teach us to deny ungodliness, worldly lust, to live soberly, righteously, and godly. We talked about what separation is. Let's talk about what separation does. Look at Ezra chapter 9. There's two things separation does, and maybe you can write these down. Number one, separation cuts ties with the world. Right? Separation from the world. Separation cuts ties with the world. Ezra chapter 9, look at verse 12. Ezra just got done with his great prayer on revival. He says that he prays. He pours out his heart to God. Now he gives us his action plan. He says this in verse 12. Now, therefore, give not your daughters unto their sons, neither take their daughters unto your sons, nor seek their peace or their wealth forever. Here's what, here's what I was saying. You cannot love the Lord and love the Lord's enemies. What concord? What agreement? What part? Hath light with darkness, righteousness with unrighteousness, Christ with Belial. He says, don't seek their peace or their wealth, that ye may be strong and eat the good of the land and leave it for an inheritance to your children forever. Look at verse 13. And after all that has come upon us for our evil deeds and for our great trespass, seeing that thou, notice, our God has punished us less than our iniquities deserve and has given us such deliverance as this. He's saying, look, we need to cut ties with the world from the world. Go to the book of James if you would. If you kept your place there in First John, if you go uh, uh, backwards, you're going to go past Second Peter, First Peter, into the book of James. James chapter 4, and look at verse 4. Say, why do I have to cut ties from the world? Here's why. Because you cannot live in agreement with the world and in agreement with God. It's impossible. Light and darkness cannot mix. 
James 4.4, 4, ye adulterers and adulteresses. Ye adulterers and adulteresses. Notice what he says. Know ye not that the friendship of the, of the world is enmity with God? Ye adulterers and adulteresses, know ye not that the friendship of the world is enmity with God? It's interesting to me because he uses this terminology, adulterer and adulteresses, talking about marriage. Look, please understand something. When you're married, you're, you're a man and you're married to a lady, hopefully, right? You're a lady and you're married to a man. You know that, you know that me developing a friendship with another woman puts me at enmity with my wife? Well, that's not what the world teaches. That's not what Facebook teaches. I don't care what Facebook teaches. That's the truth. I'm a lady. I'm I'm married to this man. Then, look, as soon as you get married, you can't have any other male friends. Ladies, men, as soon as you get married, you can't have any other female friends. Show me that in the Bible. Okay, ye adulterers and adulteresses, we're the bride of Christ. We're married to Christ. Know ye not that the friendship of the world is enmity? The word enmity means puts you at odds with God. Whosoever, therefore, will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. See, you cannot be a friend of the world and be a friend of God. It doesn't work that way. If you're a friend of the world, you're the enemy of God. That's that's it. There's There's no neutral. There's no middle ground. There's no uh, dead man's zone. There, it, it's, it's, look, you're either an enemy of God and a friend of the world or an enemy of the world and a friend of God. You can't have it both ways. This is why the Bible says, and be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Go to 1 John chapter 2. 1 John, you're there in, 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 in James. You're going to go past 1 and 2 Peter back into the book of 1 John, 1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2, verse 15. Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. See, here's what separation is. Separation is from the world unto God. Here's what separation does. It cuts ties with the world. Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Then, in him. Look at verse 16. For all. Is that word all? That means everything. It doesn't say for most. It doesn't say for some. It doesn't say because there's a few things. It says for all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. And by the way, that's all that is in the world. The lust of the eyes, the pride of life, the lust of flesh. He says it is not of the Father, but it is of the world. He says, look, if you're going to live a separated life, you're going to have to learn to cut. You're going to have to learn to cut. Separate, uh, uh, ties with the world because you cannot be a friend of the world. It puts you at enmity with God. Go back to the book of Ezra, if you would, Ezra chapter 9. What is it that separation does? Separation cuts ties with the world. Separation cuts ties with the world for all that is in the world. Look, you got to look at your life and look at your life and look, look at your life and decide, what is in my life that is from the world? That is of the world. You say, I don't know what that means. Okay, that is conformed, Romans 12, to the world. The word conform means patterned after. 
that looks like the world, that acts like the world, that smells like the world, that sounds like the world? What is in your life that is patterned after the world? Because Paul said, hey, be not conformed to this world. This is why you walk into Verity Baptist Church, it doesn't look like a rock concert in here. You say, you know, most churches you walk into nowadays, the lights are off. They've got some strobe lights and lasers and fog machines. <laughs> you say, why do they do that? Well, I'll tell you why they do that, because they're conformed to the world. Because people like rock concerts. They're trying to make their church seem like a rock concert. We're not trying to make our church seem like anything that resembles the world. Be not conformed to this world. Notice Ezra chapter 9. What does separation does? What does separation do? It cuts ties with the world. Here's, here's point two. Separation craves a relationship with God. Notice verse 14. Should we again break thy commandments and join in affinity with the people of these abominations? Wouldst not thou be angry with us till thou hadst consumed us so that there should be no remnant nor escaping O Lord God of Israel, notice verse 15. O Lord God of Israel, thou art righteous. For we remain yet escaped as it is this day. Behold, we are before thee in our trespasses. Notice what he says. For we cannot stand before thee because of this. Ezra says, we cannot stand before thee while not practicing separation. We cannot have fellowship with you while having fellowship with the world. So what does separation do? It cuts ties with the world. And it craves a relationship with God. Go back to 2 Corinthians chapter 6. Look at what it says. 2 Corinthians chapter 6. 2 Corinthians 6 verse 16 and 17 are probably the quintessential verses on separation in the Bible. If, if, if you had one verse to kind of explain separation or one passage to explain separation to someone, this is probably where you should take them. 2 Corinthians uh, 6, 16. We already looked at it today, but let's look at it again. And what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For ye are the temple of the living God, as God had said. Now, he just got done telling us in the previous verse, hey, there's no concord, there's no uh, partnership, there's no mixing of light and darkness, evil and good, Christ and, and Belial. Now he says this, and what agreement at the temple of God with idols? For ye are the temple of living God, as God hath said. Notice these words. I will dwell in them and walk in them. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Wherefore, come out from among them, and be ye separate, saith the Lord. And touch not the unclean thing. Notice the last part of verse 17. And I will receive you. See, it's separation from the world, which cuts ties with the world, and it's separation unto God, which craves a relationship with God. What separation does is it allows you to walk with God. What separation does is that it allows you to live in agreement with God. You don't have to turn there, but uh, Amos chapter 3 and verse 3 says this, Can two walk together except they be agreed? Look, there's, there's a concept taught in Scripture that you cannot walk in fellowship with someone and not be in agreement with that individual. You cannot walk with God and not be in agreement with God. This is why friendship with the world puts you at enmity with God. Can two walk together, except they be agreed? We have a YouTube channel here that the Lord has blessed, and 
it's a blessing to lots of people, and people listen to it, and all over the country and all over the world. And from time to time, people, and they're good people and well-meaning people, and we're not mad at them, of course, but from time to time, people will send us stuff all, from all over the country and all over the world, clips and, and videos and things, and they'll say, hey, maybe you can use this in one of your videos, you can use this in, in one of your documentaries, you could use this and that. And sometimes I look at these things and I think to myself, man, this is great content, but I can't use this. The music's too worldly. I can't use this. Just the way they're acting, the way they're interacting, it's just too worldly. Look, it is important that we maintain separation from the world. Why? Because you cannot walk with God while in fellowship with the world. So God says, love not the world, neither things that are in the world, for all that is in the world. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. It's not of the Father. It's of the world. So in your life and in my life, we have to consider this idea of separation. Go back to Ezra if you, if you can, Ezra chapter 9. While you turn there, let me say this. Separation. Separation should not dominate the Christian life. I think the reason that people shy away from the concept of separation, the reason that churches like these that teach separation are much less popular than the church that said, oh, no big deal. Come on in. Just, you know, uh, you don't have to change anything. We're, in fact, we're going to try to be like you. Come on in, all worldly and lustful and drunk. Just come on in. No problem. You know, the reason that those churches, in my opinion, are so popular is because we have this idea that separation dominates. And when I go to a church like Verity Baptist Church, and this, this Christian life is going to have to dominate me. It's going to put me in bondage. There's going to be all these rules. And my hair's got to be this long or not this long. And my skirt better be this long or whatever. You know, you have all these rules. Please get this. Please get this. If you think that way, if you think that way, and, and if we've done anything, if we've done anything to make you think that or feel that way about separation, I'm sorry. We fail to communicate separation. Because separation is not, in the Christian life is not something that should dominate you, put you in bondage. I have to do this. Separation should not dominate, but I will say this. Separation should permeate the Christian life. It should not dominate, but it should permeate. So what does that mean? It means that it should be taken into every area of your life. In a sermon like this, the tendency is to go through a big, long list of, of, of things that you ought to live separated. And I, and, and I don't think there's anything wrong with that, and I might do that from time to time. But honestly, I'd rather let the Holy Spirit do it. I can say this, though. In the Christian life, separation ought to permeate every area of your life. Look, when you get up and get dressed in the morning, you've got to ask yourself, am I being separated in my dress from the world and unto God? Am I dressing like the world? Is this something that God would find honoring? When it comes to your music, you've got to ask yourself, is this separate from the world and unto God? When it comes to what you consume, what you drink, what you put in your body, is this honoring to God? Is this separate from the world? When it comes to what you watch, what you read, here's what I'm telling you. You say, ah, you're trying to dominate. I'm not trying to dominate. I don't think separation ought to dominate your Christian life. But it should permeate your Christian life. What do you allow your kids to read? Is it separate from the world and unto God? What kind of entertainment do you allow in your home? Is it separate from the world and unto God? 
Oh, it's just little kids watching videos. Hey, you know, you let little kids watch videos with a bunch of worldly music on it. Don't be surprised when they're listening to a bunch of worldly music as teenagers. Is it separate from the world and unto God? Look, the love of Christ constraineth us. Separation doesn't dominate. It should not dominate. It doesn't dominate my life. It doesn't dominate my wife's life. It doesn't dominate our home. But it should permeate. Everything we do, everything we do, I'll be done through this lens. Is this pleasing to the Lord? Is this, is, is this something that I can do in agreement with God? Is this separate from the world, not for the sake of just separation from the world? Look, some people think separation is just for the sake of separation. You start going down that road, you're going to become Amish. I mean, that's the truth. We can't use technology. Well, what, look, is God against you using a phone? You understand that? It's not separation for the sake of separation. It's the purpose of separation from the world unto God. Here's what Ezra says. Look at it again, verse 15. O Lord, God of Israel, thou art righteous, for we remain yet escaped. As it is this day, behold, we are before thee in our trespasses. And he says, for we cannot stand before thee because of this. Please, please get this. Is there something in your life, there's something in your life that is cutting off fellowship between you and God? If there is, then you got to cut it. Cut the tie. Crave a relationship to God and allow separation, the concept, the idea to permeate your life. Because here's the thing. You cannot. You say, how does this connect to revival? Can two walk together except they be agreed? We learned in the first week, what is revival? To know God and to make God known. How can you know God? How can you walk with God when you're living at enmity with God? Let's bow our heads and have a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for these concepts in Scripture. I know they're not popular. I know people don't like to hear it or listen to it. In general, I know in this church people love you and they live separated lives. Lord, I pray that you would help us. From time to time, we need to be reminded, why do we do what we do? Why do we live like we live? Why do we have the standards and the separation? For some, sadly, it's because mom makes us do it. Dad makes us do it. Pastor makes us do it. But Lord, I pray you'd help all of us to transition from because we have to to because we want to. Not because separation dominates us, but because separation permeates us. Lord, I pray you'd bless us. I pray you'd help us to raise a church filled with people who say, in every area of my life, in every area of my life, I want to please the Lord. I want to separate from the world and unto God. In the matchless name of Christ, we pray. Amen.